Hey y'all and welcome back to the Warrior Monk Podcast. It's the end of March here and it was just about a month ago, a little bit over actually, that I traveled to Austin, Texas uh, for the Art of Breath Clinic that they had there at the Onnit Academy Gym. And man, I can tell you it was an awesome, awesome experience. I'm incorporating some of the stuff that I learned there uh, in my weekly training routine, in my weekly, or excuse me, daily meditative routine. Uh, And I was very, very glad to have uh, some awesome conversation with Rob Wilson, who is one of the the co-founder of Art of Breath, along with Brian McKenzie and one of their coaches who goes out and teaches and instructs and talks to aspects of breath work in the Art of Breath seminar. He was really awesome to give me some of his free time uh, via Skype, and we recorded it and providing you guys with some reflection on breath work and what the Art of Breath Clinic is, and I'm going to let him delve into the details. Before we get in the conversation, though, I really want to ask you guys, if you haven't already, please go to Facebook, go to Instagram, and find us at the Warrior Monk Podcast. Give us a like, give us a share, give us a comment, a DM. Please help the podcast out. And I want to talk to you guys today about our sponsor. Today's episode of the Warrior Monk Podcast is brought to you by Audible. I've talked about Audible and the importance of reading and books in the past, and I love Audible because it gives me the opportunity to use my time wisely and expand my mind and listen to books while I'm either driving in the car or doing chores around the house or running, basically anything you can, if you have a phone or a listening device nearby and and headphones or stereo speakers, you can be expounding upon your own knowledge with Audible. So Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a three, free 30-day trial membership. It's super easy. All you have to do is go to audibletrial.com forward slash warrior monk podcast and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs and books they have there. You just be able to go to that uh, URL, download a free title and start listening. It's super easy. So again, guys, go to Audible trial.com slash warrior monk podcast and download yourself a free book all right guys without further ado we're going to go ahead and go into the conversation with rob wilson hope you enjoy it all right guys welcome back to the warrior monk podcast Uh, i'm really excited to have rob wilson from the art of breath on with me today Rob's an awesome guy. I'm going to let him speak to his uh, credentials and and what he does a little bit. But I can tell you from going to the Art of Breath Clinic out in Austin, Texas a couple weeks ago that it's an awesome experience. And he is a wealth of knowledge. And he is a guy that really is a subject matter expert or SME, as we like to say in the military, when it comes to breathing and how it relates to performance. And uh, first off, Rob, thank you so much for joining me on this. And uh, is uh, give anybody listening to this podcast a little bit of introduction on on who you are and where you come from. Sure, absolutely, and uh, I really appreciate you having me on. Um, always my pleasure to have a chance to run my mouth. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, my professional background is originally as a manual therapist, and I specialized in um, structural integration, uh, pain management, and orthopedics, and combine that with so i've been doing that about 20 years and then about 15 plus years as a trainer strength and conditioning coach and in that time um mostly dealing with uh things on the rehabilitative end of the spectrum so um people with chronic pain movement dysfunction things like that and then uh, my wife has owned a crossfit gym since 2006 so that's really where i have the bulk of my um, sort of group coaching experience. And, you know, I've had the opportunity to work with people from all kinds of walks of life and watch movement and help people deal with performance. Um, born and raised in, uh, well, not born, but damn near, uh, raised in Virginia Beach, Virginia. And of course, this is a super high density of military population. Yep. Uh, and, and I've had the of course, the real opportunity to work in strength and conditioning, human performance, and orthopedic correction during the bulk of wartime. Uh, 
and had the fortune to work with a lot of people who were active during that time and as well as uh, quite a few veterans. Um, and that has given me a wealth of experience <clears throat> into some of the demands uh, of some of the jobs that come along with, with being in the military. And it's probably for me one of, if not my favorite community to work with um, on a personal level because I enjoy the problems. Like I like the problem solving that is unique to that population. And I also, to be perfectly frank, enjoy the stakes. Um, so like one of my very first experiences dealing with somebody um, who was getting activated for special operations was probably in like 2005. And um, I just had like, two weeks before the guy left for deployment and he came in with a bag of problems with his knees and it was just like, Hey, man, like I had to put all my thinking caps on and pull tricks out of the bag and like, Hey, get your shit together and give this guy things that are executable and we'll have real deliverable results that make a, uh, un, like a definable impact on his ability to do his job. Um, and, and so that was really important to me. Um, and then I was like, man, I kind of like this kind of pressure. Um, and then of course I just kept working with more and more people and have helped guys prepare for selection, help them recover after selection. Um, and, and yeah, and things like that. And, um, and then worked with all kinds of athletes. I coached powerlifting for, you know, at, from, I coached a lifter from basically like a basic powerlifting level all the way to elite. And, and so I just had like, I didn't go super deep with any one group other than maybe the tactical community, but I had a wide breadth of experience in the last 20 years. Um, so I've been, I've been really, really fortunate. And then that kind of led me into oddly enough, teaching seminars. Um, Dr. Kelly Sturette from uh, mobility wad was an early mentor of mine. And, uh, I don't know, I've known Kelly probably 10 years now. Um, I was on the original mobility wad staff. That's uh, awesome. and then that's how I got to know Brian McKenzie. And of course, Brian and I co-founded the art of breath seminar. Um, just because we both come from a movement and performance background and getting into breathing really started out as like trying to make people go faster and recover more quickly. And then it opened up, opened itself into this huge gamut of possibility, um, a rabbit hole that the deeper I go, the more I realized it's far deeper than I could ever possibly cover in a single lifetime. It's pretty, it's a pretty immense field, um, more so than almost anything else I've ever come across. Um, but the scalability of it is what makes it so interesting to me um as a teacher is uh, it's a single tool that i could give to somebody who's an elite performer and i can show my grandma some stuff and it helps across the entire spectrum so you know that's kind of led me to where i am today i kind of got into it for performance reasons and then figured out like oh shit like there's some really uh cool stuff here that's way beyond going faster um, but even the going faster part, we're just scratching the surface. So really cool stuff. Absolutely, man. That's a great kind of caption or snapshot on, on your career. And I got to say, um, just on a, on a personal note, guys like you guys like Brian McKenzie and, and guys like, uh, Kelly, uh, I really, I really point to guys like you a lot when it comes to this whole kind of shift there's been in thinking within the military and especially the soft community of starting to treat, uh, the operators and, and people in the military as, as professional athletes, you know, and starting to look at them from a longevity standpoint and, you know, the, starting to look at them as a weapon platform, you know, in the, in the air force, we have these, some of these, uh, air platforms like the C one thirties, the cargo planes. I mean, and those, some of those actual planes have been around since the sixties or seventies. So this whole kind of concept of investing in an aircraft, where you're putting in time, money, and effort to maintain it and keep it up to snuff. It's kind of the same mentality is now going into the the operators as athletes that like these, you know, if to get an investment, a return on these guys, you know, we can't put all this money, effort 
into them to get one or two deployments out of them and then they're broken and we've got to kind of push them to the wayside. It's like we got to keep these guys going with their nutrition. We need to get going with their mobility and we've got to keep them going with their, their strength and, and all that kind of stuff as well as even, even down to the psychology and stuff like that. So I really thank you guys who are getting kind of there on the front line, so to speak, of of the human performance aspect to keep guys on the ground going and getting the mission done. So it's awesome. Thank you for that. Yeah. And I'll, I'll even speak to like, so I think one of the, so the utilitarian approach, which is sort of just like use, use somebody up and then throw them away. There's a couple of downsides to that, which is one, I feel like that is a complete disgrace to a human being who is willing to, make the ultimate sacrifice absolutely um, for their their country and their community that's a horrendous way to show appreciation um and it's a complete lack of respect and and honor for a way to treat these individuals but then on top of that aside from the ethical component is that it's also just impractical um that you have um, some of these folks, especially in the soft communities who deploy, they, they survive mm-hmm. not just the deployments, but the training is un- unbelievably taxing, brutal. And then they garner all this experience and then they're not around to share it with the next generation, uh, as completely as they could. So it's almost like the learning curve. Uh, a lot of times the learning cycle is not as complete as it could be. Um, because you know, guys eject uh, absolutely so quickly, and so um, I think if you can if you can uh, show more support, the more support that's shown inside, um, the better. Because you'll get guys who are really good, not just from experiential standpoint, but who are really good leaders, know how to share information with other people. Those guys will stick around because they'll feel like, hey, I'm going to get taken care of. Um, but whereas a utilitarian approach, they're going to be like later going to the private sector where I can make a really good living and, you know, get taken care of. So and I mean, who how can you blame them? No, um, you but yeah, I think the utilitarian approach is both unethical and impractical. And it has a real deep kind of psychological effect, too, on on guys, too, where they come back and it's like the kind of well, you're broken. We can't use you anymore. It's like that kind of sense of purpose and and drive. Like some of these guys dedicate so much blood, sweat and tears into their respective career field, whether it's, you know, the special forces or uh, the Navy SEALs or in the Air Force, the special tactics guys. It's like if you tell them they can't do their job anymore, regardless of, you know, whether they really can based on their physicality. I mean, it's uh, it's like taking a piece of their identity away. And I'll say this sort of on you know, the other side of that, the flip side of that coin is, you know, when I go places as a consultant um, and you talk to the HP staff, I mean, they have really good intentions and they do their absolute best, but often they're overwhelmed with the amount of problems that they have. Um, it seems like an insurmountable task to help these guys uh, stay healthy and recover from the kind of continuous uh, injury cycles that they're in. And the, the systems that are in place are, are old and don't necessarily uh, completely serve the populations that they're working with. And sure. so a lot of times it's just like a sheer sheer like a surely insurmountable volume of shit that has (laughs) to be dealt with where um everybody's just trying to do the best they can and it's often like a lack of uh communication about um how to actually execute what everybody knows what needs to be done uh, ironically in the military so um you know, uh, it, and it's like everything, man. Anytime there's a huge bureaucracy, change happens, but it happens slow. It's like watching yep. the grass grow. Absolutely, you know? especially um, in a machine as big as the U.S. military. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, I mean, we all try to do our best, and then at the same time, it opens up opportunities for the private sector because mm-hmm. oh, it always moves faster. Because if you're an entrepreneur. You have to get shit right because there's no safety net. Yeah, absolutely. So. Cool. Well, I'm going to use that as a transition point to kind of shift to 
the art of breath and what you guys are doing with this uh, traveling seminar, going out to different gyms and different locations. So uh, for anyone who don't doesn't know what it is, it's, I mean, this is a seminar where you're, you're showing up with and uh, typically from, from the crowd, at least from the one I went to, you've got, you know, people, different people from the healthcare, sports performance uh, world, uh, you know, personal trainers to CrossFit gym owners, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they're coming to this, this clinic to learn how to breathe, right? Which uh, from a, a, a 50,000 foot view is like, all right, self-explanatory. I mean, it's, you know, air in, air out. But why why should someone go to a clinic like this? Like, I, I know I had personal reasons for going. I've been watching you guys from Power Speed Endurance and the Art of Breath Clinic for a couple of years. But if anyone's not familiar with the, on a detailed level of what you guys are doing, break, break it down for them. Why should they show up? Um, well, so I'll, I'll tell you what this, you know, I'll kind of tell the listeners what the seminar is and then I'll sure. explain, you know, why they should come. So, right. you know, first of all, the, the seminar is a one day overview into the theory and practice of breath work. Right. And so what we found is that people have been talking about controlling breathing for lots of different purposes, whether it was to achieve a specific state of mind, um, to get better motion from their body or to enhance endurance effects for a very long time. None of those things are any secret. The problem is that that information was very siloed into specialties and there weren't, there wasn't a common language where anybody could sort of come regardless of background. And that's like you said, like people who you come to the seminar and you're like, wow, this is like a PT who specializes in pelvic floor health. There's a guy who wants to figure out how to beat his asthma. There's a CrossFit gym owner and everything in between. And, and I think one of the reasons for that is because we have tried to create a language that's more secular. Um, and Brian and I are both long, long time yoga practitioners and I, I love yoga. Um, but some of the language, as far as the crossing barriers is concerned, it's pretty archaic and it's, it's art esoteric and it is really hard for a modern Western person to relate to because a lot we, of people turn off to it just because of you start using word like chakras and it's like, okay, boomer. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, and the thing is, is like to understand that the culture that that came from is not based on research in the right. way that, you know, it's not based on double blind placebo. You know, it's, it's a culture that's based on uh, story and right. oral tradition. And so they have to use language that allows them to pass that information in the best way they could. Absolutely. Um, because they weren't, they didn't have the same systems for recording data that we have right. uh, and, and so to realize that that's a that's a visual piece of imagery but but then what we realize is like okay well there's still value in the actual participation but what what kind of language can we associate to it that brings people's walls down and it'll actually get them to engage in the practice and then how can we look at what what are the subtle themes what are the principles underlying all of it and create some language so that no matter what you come from or what you want to do, you can engage. And the seminar is a one-day introduction into that, into our view of the best way of explaining uh, um, that similarity, what those underlying principles are. And, you know, like you said, breath work is kind of like this thing where, like, people are like, who cares, man? Like, as long as I'm breathing, um, it doesn't really matter. And the reality is, is that um, breathing is obviously essential to staying alive, but it's so essential that it has this deep, deep connection that branches out into all your physiology, including like gut health, cardiac rhythm, yeah. even like the rhythm of your gait can be affected by um by rib cage movement and health. Um, we know that like stride development in toddlers is affected by respiratory dysfunction. So like kids who grow up with, um, you know, like if they have a facial dysfunction that it'll affect the timeline with which they crawl and then walk, um, because your ability to coordinate pressure in your trunk directly affects your ability to move your limbs. Um, and if you've ever had to hold your breath and do something, 
we know that that's true, right? right. It affects um, it affects uh, motility in the intestines, so your diaphragm actually massage literally massages the shit out of you, right? So like your diaphragm pushes down and moves helps move fecal matter through the intestinal tract. Um, your respiration rate is directly reflective of your stress inputs. And that's all cause stress. That's not just uh, physical exercise stress, but even psychological stress. And what's really important is that breathing of all of your deep physiological systems is the only one that you can take conscious control over in real time. Now, vision, you can actually take some conscious control over, but, you know, I know most of your audiences, uh, like most of the most people who listen right now are military, right? Yeah. Um, and, and one of the things we talk about is, like, you're, you can move your gaze, and that will affect your, your, uh, the way your body reacts to stress. Um, but if you're ever in a position where you have to deal with a uh, sight picture, uh, um, then gaze, like altering gaze rapidly is not, is not an option for you. Um, and so breath is this big universal where you can actually start taking over the conversation between your conscious mind and your deep physiology and redirect things in important ways. And that can mean like better use of energy systems. That can mean what kind of mindset I'm in right now. Right. And everybody, like everybody knows this because it's a common thing to say to another per person, Hey man, take a nice deep breath and calm Absolutely. down. Hey, just breathe, right? That's that's advice we give to each other in so many situations, but we don't stop to think about why is that such a why is that such an intrinsic part of our language to say that to each other? And it's because we know it will instantly alter the psychological state of the person we're speaking to if they do it. Absolutely. Right. We we know it. And then we also know if we're standing next to somebody. And we're about to do something difficult and they're going, <sighs> you're like, oh man, this dude is cooked. Like yep. this isn't gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna burn out or work way harder than they have to, to achieve the same goal. And it's just, it's, there's an intuition around that, that we know, but what very seldom happens is the reverse engineering where we can figure out how to proactively manipulate that resource so that we don't end up in that place. And that's where breathing comes into effect and like really there's some really cool stuff. You can easily Google this, but slow breathing affects HRV. You know, everybody's HRV, HRV, HRV for recovery. You mm -hmm. can alter your HRV um, with breath practice, right? You can slow your heart rate down, right? You, and this is a cool thing too. You see, and if somebody has no breath training and you do some sprints together and, every, and you're wearing a heart rate monitor, and you go, all right, man, you got to slow your heart rate down. Everybody does this. Yep. Nobody, nobody like squints their eyes and thinks their heart <laughs> is slowing down. They breathe different to slow their heart rate down. Even if they don't have the skill yet, they automatically do it because that they know some part of them knows that's the only way they can ex access their heart rate is by sure. changing their breath rhythm. And, um, and so it's a super important thing and it, we have it all the time. We're always, we always have access to this breath unless of course, like for example, you're underwater or something like that. Other than that, you have access to your breath rhythm constantly. So learning how to use it is a skill that you can plug and play into anything you do. Yeah. And it, it has so many applications within the military too, not not just because of, of physical fitness being required for the job, but being able to uh, handle stress and, you know, rec recognize the that uh, sympathetic nervous system response when the, the proverbial uh, human excrement hits the uh, the oscillator, as well as, uh, I mean, even like the, the basic fundamentals of shooting a rifle. I mean, if you go to any kind of marksman course, the first thing they teach you is like respiratory pause and learning to take a shot in between heartbeats and stuff like that. You know, controlling controlling your breath. If your if your breath's all out of control, you're gonna throw a shot. You're you know you're you're not gonna hit your intended target. So it all it all translates. And I'm finding more and more, and even with like my personal hobbies and stuff like that, how important breath is and stuff like that. 
Um, and talking about the, the military application and stuff like that, I wanted to talk to a big piece on CO2 tolerance. Uh, you talk about it in in the course, but how basically how it's a it's a measure of stress response. So what, what how can you speak to that piece? Ooh, buddy, this is <laughs> this is a good subject. This is uh, I would say probably like our hallmark thing that is a little bit different about what we teach in regards to um, breath training than um, other courses in particular. So, you know. Let's talk a little, so here, we'll just talk about it in this framework, right? So the way that we often explain it is like lessons from free diving, right? Right. So you look at the free diving community and, you know, I think the world record for breath hold is like in a pool. It's like 22 minutes, but, you know, a really good free dive probably lasts on on average like seven, five to seven minutes, which is still a long damn time um, to hold your breath. Uh, and be underwater and deal with the pressure. And so um, free divers know that the first step into being able to hold your breath longer is getting tolerant to carbon dioxide. And so when they do CO2 tables, right, that is actually what they're doing. It's carbon dioxide tables. And here is why. There's kind of two reasons. One is that carbon dioxide is the the universal stress signal to your nervous system. So you have sensors in your heart and in your neck that in your carotid arteries that basically say pH is getting too acidic. If it continues to get acidic, you'll go into a coma and die. Like that's the, that's the ultimate horrible end game. If your pH doesn't get altered. Right. So it's like, Hey, you have to breathe now. What's really interesting about the way that your body deals with that is it's predictive. So let's say it's a scale of 100 that it will tolerate. Your body doesn't wait until your CO2 is at 90 on the scale of 100. When you hit 60, it goes, hey, this this shit is happening. You better pay attention. Then when it gets to 65, it goes, hey, man, I told you. Then 70, it tells you again. And then eventually you go, right? Well, it's kind of like when your muscles have, that have nerves say, hey, this is your end range of motion. But then when you kind of hang out there for a minute, you go a little farther. Right. It's, it's not because your muscles get longer. It's because the nerves that say this is too far chill out. And if you do it often enough, you reset your perception of what your end range of motion is. And the same thing happens with the stress response is that the chemical signal that says stress, it's not that it alters right away. It's that your interpretation of that signal gets more clear. That's the first step in CO2 tolerance. And that's really important because usually the signal comes way early. It's like somebody pulls the fire alarm, but there's no fire. It's like pulling the fire alarm if somebody lights a match. Right. Right. And so what you want to do is actually get better at knowing when there's actually a fire and when it's just a match. Right. Now, the second part of that is the actual physiological component that takes place. Now, this is goes back. This goes back to free diving and how they actually get more oxygen to be released in the bloodstream. Now, what most people think is like, as long as I'm breathing, everything is cool plenty of oxygen is going in the body. And that might be true. Plenty of oxygen might be going in, but we know it's not about how much oxygen goes in. It's about how much gets used. And an easy way to think about it is kind of like a school bus, right? So if you have a school bus and you have four kids get on, so each kid would be like an oxygen and the school bus is like a red blood cell. It once the school, once the school bus gets to its destination, It doesn't mean automatically all the kids get off the bus. The way your body works is four different kids have to get on the bus for those four kids to get off. And sometimes one kid gets off and sometimes two. And it all depends on how much CO2 is at that tissue site. And because they switch, there's always a switch between carbon dioxide and oxygen. And that's what's really important is how much oxygen gets 
released. But what happens is when that fire alarm gets pulled early because there's a match, we start to overbreathe and we dump CO2 out of the system, even though we need it to switch places with that oxygen. Now, can you get conditioned without being CO2 tolerant? Of course you can, but you can't be aerobically efficient. So that way it's not about how much more work can I do? Work can I do? Work can I do? It's how good can I get my body at releasing oxygen into tissues that need it? And that's what CO2 tolerance is about is addressing the signal to the brain that everything's okay and getting the system to deal with oxygen a lot more effectively. And what's really interesting is the other side of that, which is what's going on in the mind with CO2. And um, an easy way to think about this is like, no matter whether it's your body actually exercising or whether you have a perception of a threat in the environment, your metabolic system upregulates, right? It couldn't even, it doesn't even need to be a threat. It could literally be like you just see a person who you find attractive and your heart rate goes up. Well, if your heart rate went up, that means your metabolic system upregulated, so you're using more oxygen, right? And when that happens often, which is the case with like people with anxiety, over time, they get into this place where they're hypercapnic, where they're offloading CO2 way too much. And so they get really sensitive when the system goes up in CO2 levels really quickly. And there's actually this really cool thing out there, and you can look it up. It's called suffocation alarm theory, which is the basic idea that a lot of the physiological makeup of anxiety and panic, whether it's a disorder or it's just the general feeling of panic, come from elevated uh, CO2. And there's this really cool experiment. A colleague of ours, uh, Justin Feinstein, did he's at the laureate institute in oklahoma and basically they wanted to understand this better and so uh, they worked with this patient who and they study panic disorder and anxiety there and they worked with this patient who had um, lesions on her amygdala and normally we think of the amygdala as the part of the brain that is associated with fear right well what happens is when people have a lesion on their amygdala they don't respond in a fearful way to normally stressful stimuli and they purposefully tried to scare this woman roller coasters haunted houses threats like they did all kinds of crazy stuff you can read more about the experiment if you look justin up and what they found was like they couldn't scare her and actually her absence of fear put her in danger so like she got for this particular person had gotten mugged and she basically like sure. told the guy, told the guy off because she didn't have a normal fear response like oh god I could get hurt here I should give them my stuff. Um, but what they we have, found we was, have a fear response for a reason, right? It's kept us alive. <laughs> that's right. It's not that you need to do away with the fear response; it's that you need to understand when it's helping you and when it's right. not to that's temper true. to temper that fear response so that you can still. Um, make good decisions. And so what ended up happening was they took this woman who wasn't experiencing fear and they put a closed system mask on her, so nose and mouth, and they gave her a bolus hit of carbon dioxide. So they gave her some air that was about 30% carbon dioxide and she freaked out in about 45 or 14 seconds, ripped the mask off and was like, oh my God, I feel it's going to be die. And she had a panic response to elevated CO2. So that means carbon dioxide bypasses the normal fear mechanism. So it's, it's, or it's actually in a more primitive part of the brain in the brainstem than the amygdala, which is in the limbic system. And so um, if you learn how to manipulate that or you get more tolerant of it, it actually helps you subjugate the fear response, whether it's acute or whether it's chronic, like in something like anxiety. Now, what's really cool is when you know, we were talking about the soft community is to some degree, it's become a litmus test. So right. in almost every, um, you know, almost in every uh, soft selection, 
there's what's referred to as stress inoculation. And where does that happen? It's in a pool. And that's where most people tap out. Even like the freaks among freaks of athletes, it's often in the pool work where they get, where they either quit or get ejected because the panic response underwater is so strong. Uh, and that's why it's such a, a good litmus test of your ability to handle, handle general stress. And what's really interesting about it is when you're holding your breath, the thing that actually drives you to breathe again is CO2. It's a long, long time, even for the average person, before your oxygen level gets low enough to be damaging. Right. Like one thing that Brian and I have messed with a lot is wearing a, um, a pulse ox. And man, even somebody who's experienced, it takes multiple minutes of breath holds and intervals to start getting your oxygen levels below 90%, below 85%, which is where for most people it could get dangerous. We're talking like minutes upon minutes. And when, and if you ask most people, just the average person to like swim a couple laps underwater, which, you know, might amount to a minute, it ain't happening. I can't do it. And that's not because they're out of oxygen. It's because CO2 gets higher than they can tolerate. Right. So that's the thing with CO2 tolerance. And what we figured out from looking at these ends of the spectrum where people have really high CO2 tolerance just, just via the fact of training and people with really bad CO2 tolerances and how it affects them ang- anxiously, it's like, well, if we can find the common denominator here and begin to manipulate it, we can both get better sport outcomes, but we can also simultaneously affect the way that people are affected by all-cause stressors. Um, and that's what we have found, and we're actively engaging in research um, to come up with better systems for testing uh, and manipulating uh, CO2 tolerance. So it's a really, really promising um direction that things are going and it's something that we're super passionate about and, and always looking to learn learn more about all the time awesome man that's that's a great explanation i'm, I'm glad you went over all that and I'm, I'm glad you you talked about how it ties into the soft community and the the selection process and stress inoculation you hit you hit all the all the points i was hoping you would so i appreciate that talking about co2 tolerance to go into another aspect of of this whole thing of breathing and it doesn't just affect your your mental state, but your metabolism as well. So, how you know what what is what is the sh- the science showing, you know, in in recent research about how breath work and how you breathe can actually affect an individual's metabolism? Um. So some of the newer research research is actually showing that it has promising effect for. For, uh, individuals with diabetes and cardiovascular disorder. Um, and, and that is because the way that you breathe fundamentally affects the way that your body uses energy. Um, now we know that, you know, diabetes is obviously a, a disorder with, um, regulation of blood sugar. And there's obviously, you know, I don't want to like, of course I'm going to say this and then like, some MD who is like a <laughs> like a like a pancreat like a, a pancreatologist with who specializes in rare genetic type one diabetes is going to cook me on this topic. But um, basically, the idea being that especially with type two diabetics, it's really a dysfunction of energetic processes, right. and that by regulating breathing patterns more effectively. And becoming more aerobically efficient, your body requires a lot less input from carbohydrate. And when it does use carbohydrate, it uses it more effectively and it helps sustain much more stable blood sugar levels because you're actually oxidizing fat a lot more effectively. And that's sort of the baseline. Like I'm not like super deep into the research on how this, you know, specifically affects diabetics. Um but what I would say is if you want to know more about it, there's a really good spot to look. And that's, uh, I can't remember if his website is breathingdiabetic.com, but if you just Google the breathing diabetic, it's, uh, 
Nick, and I can't remember Nick's last name right now. I feel like a total tool. Um, I, especially I remember seeing him on you guys' Instagram. You guys yeah. did a little so shot. He's doing, yeah, and he's doing a ruck. He's doing a big fundraiser yep. for our nonprofit research organization this week. Mm-hmm. So I feel especially douchey for not remembering his last name right now. Um, but he's doing a, a big 100-mile ruck this weekend um, to, to raise awareness for, you know, he's a really interesting guy. He was a a diabetic and had health problems for a long time and started using breath techniques. And, um, it really started improving his general health. Um, basically became an asymptomatic diabetic. Um, and he is way deep in this research. I mean, he could quote you study after study uh, about this, um, which, which I cannot right now. Um, but you know, the fundamental idea being that if you have a dysregulation of energy in the human body and you use the fundamental resource for how your body regulates energy, which is respiration, then it's a much better approach. And the reason being, I think is because a lot of times we come from a symptom patch approach with people's health or we come from disorder. Instead of moving people towards the function that we want, we address a dysfunction that we don't want. Instead of trusting the physiology to adjust itself properly, given inputs. And, you know, to some degree, I realize that because it does require some behavioral shifts that many people would be um, unwilling to participate in. Yeah, well, that's the that's the part of the problem of the healthcare industry, right? Is I don't want to work towards better health; I just want the pill. Yeah, and not just you know, not just the healthcare industry, but people in general often will take the easy road. Um, right. But I feel like that's where um, education is important because mm-hmm. if people realize what the um, diminishing returns on constant pharmaceutical intervention is then they would just progressively choose something different some people always wouldn't but many people who you know once they realize what the actual cost to benefit ratio is they're like eh man i really don't want to take this shit anymore and that's for all kinds of disorders that i've dealt with um, even people with like severe anxiety who take Xanax at first, they're like, yeah, this will help me. And then they're like, wow, this actually makes me feel like shit. I'll try that breathing stuff now, you right. know? Um, but, but yeah, I think, you know, there's huge promise with metabolic derangement. And what I think is, you know, obviously we know things like with type two diabetes, especially exercise and nutritional regulation are really important components in dealing with metabolic, uh, syndromes like that. Um, but what makes breath work in particular really cool is it's accessible. So if you have, for example, a client or there's a patient of somebody, uh, a person who's way overweight and they have an aversion to exercise. And and sometimes when people have uh, metabolic problems, it's not just like, they have an aversion to exercise because, you know, they're a bad person and they're just lazy. There's usually it's wrapped in like, I haven't done it in a long time. I'm embarrassed that I haven't done it. I'm going to suck. And what are people going to think of me? It's going to take forever. I'm so past this. I think I'm, it's a point of no return. So they just feel like there's this big wall in the way. And if you can do something simple, like, regulate your breathing and start to see some success, then I think you'll have a behavioral adherence rate that's much higher. And on top of that, it's more convenient. You know, you don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to go anywhere special. There's no real extra cost involved. And so once we figure out what kind of protocols and rhythms best get those kind of outcomes for, for, you know, patients with energetic problems then i think we'll see it being prescribed a lot more frequently and we'll see people looking for it um much more readily but you know basically it all ends up boiling down to how is your body regulating its energetic needs um if you get more effective at doing that then you're moving towards something functional 
not just trying to plug holes in the dam. Absolutely. So I, that's actually a great segue point to, you know, if someone's not familiar with breath work or it's not something they've been doing on a regular basis, not doing yoga, not not necessarily following the a routine already, what, what are like a few things people could start doing to kind of start being more cognizant of their breath and start kind of using this as a tool to improve their breathing process? Um, sure. So there's a couple, there's a couple ways to think about it. One thing I would say just out of the gate is, you know, I can give you guys some general stuff and then, uh, I'll give you some options for customization. There you go. Right. So, so generally speaking in the morning, most people want to wake up. So if you're somebody who is having a little, who has a little bit more trouble upregulating, you can do some faster breathing with like some basic motion, right? And so this is a really good one. Like um, maybe if you're just kind of like shaking your arms and legs out while your coffee's brewing in the morning, you can do like a faster breathing rhythm, which is in through your nose and out through your mouth, like almost like a boxer who's in the corner getting ready to fight, like that kind of motion, like maybe like 10 breaths like that. And then take a big inhale, blow all your air out, plug your nose and do as many steps as you can. And then, and then when you feel like the urge to breathe, breathe normally, and then do the faster breathing again. And you do that two or three times, I bet you'll be pretty awake, right? So like 10 breaths in through the nose, out through the mouth while you shake your arms and legs. And then inhale, blow all your air out, and walk in place until you want to breathe two or three times. That might take like two and a half, three minutes, maybe. And I, I bet you'll be way more alert and way more uh, focused. And part of that is you're restricting your breathing, and nothing gets your attention <laughs> like your your air getting taken away. Um, and so that brings you up. Now, the other side of that is, and I think this is where, you know, at least in my experience, people in the mill community have trouble is downshifting. So they're real good at on, 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 and not so good at tuning it down. And I know a lot of guys who have sleep, sleep problems, not only because like the demands of the job, but also like some guys just work shitty hours. So like, not everybody is in a soft community and some guys just right. get stuck with like shit duty at night. And it's like, Hey man, you, you know I mean, what I my mean? My crew field, my crew field is notorious for it because we're, you know, we're military police. So somebody has got to be guarding the gate or the airfield at mid at midnight or two in the morning. So yeah, sometimes you just get the shit watch and yeah. you know, when that happens and you're on these cycles of, um, altered times, it can be very hard to, to downshift your system. And I think a lot of times the trouble that guys have is that, and, and I say guys, but guys and gals have is yeah. that they try to treat it like a light switch, like, like mm -hmm. it's on, it's off. And instead you want to treat it like a dimmer. And what breathing can do is help you start to turn the dimmer down. And a really simple thing that you can do is right before you get in bed, you can like lay either right in your bed or on the floor or something, and you can inhale through your nose, like a two or three count. You can pause for a two or three count, and then you exhale slower than your inhale was, right? And you can do it through your mouth or your nose for this, like if it's just more comfortable at first. Long term, I recommend the nose, but you know, short term, if it just helps you get into the rhythm using your mouth, that's fine. So inhale for a two or three count, pause for a two or three count, and then exhale slower than your inhale. And progressively as you lay there, you want to make your exhale longer and longer and longer and smoother and smoother. And I, this is what happens all the time. I give that very simple protocol to people, and they text me the next day and tell me I fell asleep while I was doing it. So that's why I tell a lot of people get in bed because yeah. they underestimate how relaxing it will be and poof, it, yeah. they fall asleep doing it. Um, and so it's really, really simple. You don't have to have any special knowledge. Um, one thing that does help is when you do that one that you actually put your hands physically on your ribs and it'll help you breathe 
more effectively with your diaphragm. So whenever you're inhaling, you just focus on the motion of the ribs below your hands. And then as you're exhaling, you just allow your ribs to shrink. You don't have to squeeze the air out. You just let it out slow. Um, you just make that exhale slower and slower and slower. And that engages the relaxation response. Um, and for a lot of people, and I mean, it's not like a miracle drug. Like, you know, if you're somebody who has chronic, a chronic sleep disorder, you know, it may take some real practice and it might not take you from a 10 to a two, but sometimes a 10 to an eight is a win, right? right? Sure. 10 to an eight is a win. So it can really help. And this is something, you know, like you said, that we use for first responders, law enforcement, um, a lot of firefighters who we work with who go on calls and then go back and try to get in bed. We'll use this to like downregulate after a call and then yeah. go back to sleep. Um, so it's, it's a really useful pro protocol and it's super simple. You don't really need any special knowledge to do it. Now that's, that's awesome. sort of, uh, sorry, that's sort of generally speaking. And then if you want to customize it, if you go to powerspeedendurance.com forward slash breathing we have a co2 tolerance test and you can do your co2 tolerance test and then we have some different protocols you can play with and if you start to play with them you'll figure out which one is stimulating for you and which one is relaxing for you because ultimately what we learn is that even though there's some baseline physiology that's the same for everybody that where your physiology is in the spectrum of possibilities can be very different. Kind of like we know that squatting is good for people, but what kind, how heavy, how often, that varies quite a bit. Sure. So the same way with breathing, it's like, you know, some people do better with front squats, some people do better with back squats, some people just goblet squat, some people just need to rest in the bottom of the squat so that their knees stop fucking hurting <laughs> breathing you have to discover over time which type does what for me and that's why we called our seminar the art of breath and not right. like rob and brian's breathing stuff because <laughs> we ultimately wanted people to take some ownership and go hey what works best for me what's the best expression of my physiology um so there's right. some good general rules and if you do that forever um, guess what? You're going to figure out, Hey Rob, uh, two or three seconds inhale isn't long enough for me anymore. Now I do four to five and then I hold it actually for two and then I do it a little different. And guess what? You're doing the art of breath anyway. You really have no choice. Ultimately what everyone does is figures out what works best for them. So, um, but yeah, if you want to get granular, you can go to the website and, and play with some different ratios of breathing and kind of get into it. And it's pretty fun. Awesome, man. That's, that's awesome. Well, what, can you throw the, the website out one more time for that, that breathing table or the breathing test? Sure. That's power speed endurance, all one word.com forward slash breathing. That's awesome. I'm going to check it out. I actually haven't looked at it yet on the website. So I'm going to do that after I get off this call with you. Um, so something I like to ask all my guests on the, on the Wear Monk podcast is, uh, you know, you're, you're a super, super intelligent dude. You've got great background and experience. And I know you're, you're the type of person who's constantly kind of looking for the next, the next thing as far as, as far as your knowledge base and, and the people you're surrounding yourself with and, and what you're being influenced by. So the question for you is who's, uh, who's influencing Rob Wilson right now? Who are you reading? Who are you following on, on social media? Who's, who's mentoring you, whether it's, real world or uh, remotely? Um, so let's see, who am I reading right now? I try to read outside my field mm -hmm. uh, whenever possible. So um, I'm reading, um, should I just lost the name of the book? Like just as I said it, uh, I have it right here. Yeah. So, Finite and Infinite Games uh, by James Cars really really interesting book i just started it um but it's just all about how human beings organize play um uh, re really subject. yeah really interesting stuff um i just read um skin in the game by uh by taleb so he wrote anti-fragility black swan 
Right. Um, you know, to, was a, he was an economist, um, and he has some really good uh, thinking around how systems function, and he tends to analyze the way nature works. Um, so he's a really good read. Um, been reading some business books as well. Um, and then as far as like people who I'm, uh, I'm influenced by, I would say right now, like a couple of the major people who I'm having discussions with, I mean, always like me and Brian McKenzie are like, you know, we're like brothers from another mother. Like we're always <laughs> tossing ideas back and forth, but outside of my immediate sort of coworker circle, I would say, um, Vernon Griffith, yep. who, who, um, is the owner operator of uh, Virginia High Performance. Um, if you guys don't follow him uh, in Virginia High Performance, I would highly recommend it. He has some really cool stuff and has definitely influenced my thinking lately on um, approaches to biomechanics, especially in like functional athletic applications. And uh, he just has some really cool and interesting ways that he approaches generating exercises for that stuff and uh, really creative, uh, smart guy. And, and uh, I spend a lot of time actually at Virginia high performance and, and they're just good, good people there. Um, and then um, also I've been starting to chat a, a, a good bit with uh, uh, Dan Pfaff from Altus, um, which is probably one of the world places in, in track and field. And Dan uh, is a legendary coach in track and field. Um, but a brilliant, brilliant mind in regards to all things adaptive and human beings. And uh, he's been coaching, uh, I think, a little bit longer than I've been alive. Um, and uh, I'm pretty fortunate to have uh, had the opportunity to have some conversations with him lately just in regards to like adaptation, stress, biomechanics. Um, and he's, he's a really incredible resource. Um, uh, especially in the, in the coaching field. Um, and so those are some of the people who, you know, I'm looking to looking directly, uh, for a, as influencers on, on the way that I'm thinking about things, um, currently. So, sure. um, that's, a, that's a great list and it, cr it crosses a pretty broad spectrum too. So you're, you're, you're a well-rounded dude. <laughs> I, tr I try to be, I try to think outside of you know, just what's in my field. I did plenty of reading. I was obsessed with biomechanics for a long, long time. Um, but at some point you kind of have to go start looking at more of a, you know, a 10, 20,000 foot view, or you get locked into your own little sort of isolated perspective. And it, Absolutely. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to really uh, create anything new conceptually that way. Like that ties right into the whole concept of what the Warrior Monk podcast is all about is it's about balance, right? You can't you can't always be the warrior, you can't always be the monk. You gotta you gotta kind of take that time to self-assess and decide it's time to start working on the other side of the the, the flip side of the coin and expand on yourself a little bit. So, uh, and then again, I'll, I'll ask you the same question I've asked my last couple guests is like when you hear something like a, the term Warrior Monk, what does that bring to your mind? What does that make you think of? I mean, so for me. Um... I grew up in the martial arts mm -hmm. and so that has a pretty significant uh, meaning for me, like sure. what, what that really means. And, you know, that started out like I've studied like Muay Thai and Judo and Jeet Kune Do, Kali, Mafalindo Sila, Junfan Gung Fu, blah, blah, blah. And so um, that whole idea of, having a, um, a philosophy, you know, having a, a, a driven ethic like a warrior does, like the ability to set any goal uh, and move towards it, but then also to be in larger service of the culture that you live in. And I think that's one of the edicts that people lose about the warrior. I mean, obviously, um, if you're a warrior, then you're prepared to... Um, engage in violence and i don't mean that mean that doesn't mean necessarily to harm others it just means like a violence is just an explosive situation so to be able right. to move towards um violent interactions and keep your keep your shit together take um, action to take action they have the ability to take action and mm -hmm. i think that's really important um but then also um to have the the thought process of service 
and and I think that's a really important distinction and one that people lose a lot about the warrior mindset. Um, and when you're around a lot of true warriors, like I've had the fortune to be be around, what you realize is um, that they do it in service to others, mm-hmm. um, and and not just um, the people near them, but to protect their culture at large and that they're willing to put forth the greatest risk possible, which is life and limb, um, in order to, to, to serve others. And I think that's a really important thing. And one of the things people don't realize is, uh, you know, for me, I was influenced by samurai culture, uh, um, and you know, like I grew up reading book of five rings and then, um, and, um, uh, if anybody's really interested in like going deep on that stuff, the unfettered mind by, mm. uh, Dakawan Soho, who was, uh, Musashi's, uh, philosophical mentor and like basically turned him from like a scumbag teenager, um, into the philosophical kick-ass dude that everybody right. knows who he is. I haven't um, read it, but it's, it's going to go on my reading list as, as of today. So it's it's pretty awesome and intense um and you know so that idea of being able to be at peace not just with your surroundings but within yourself but also to be able to take action and the way that we talk about this like in the art of breath thing or in like the context of what we do is you know a lot of times when people think about breathing they just think relaxing and that's not our approach at all it's that i want to be able to drive myself into sympathetic states into states of high action when i want to but then to be able to downshift when i want to so you know people who are always relaxed they can't act with immediacy uh when it's required so and that doesn't mean necessarily a fight or combat that can mean like i'm waiting on the street corner and i see an old lady who's wandering into traffic I can immediately spring into action and move towards her and help her away from that and then not carry it with me for the rest of the day. Right. I can go, Hey, I'm, you know, do you need help? Okay. And then done. And when it's done, it's done. And that's how I think about it. It's that, it's that balance. Like you said, the ability to move into action, but then the, also the ability to be still. It's awesome, man. I love that definition. I'm, I'm glad I asked you the question. Um, so yeah, so, so if anyone to know, uh, following you, following Art of Breath, where, where do they need to go? Where do they want, should they go to find more information? How can they get plugged in? Sure. So if you want to learn about Art of Breath seminar, you can go to powerspeedendurance.com uh, forward slash Art of Breath. Um, all of our seminars are listed. We got some cool stuff coming up. I think uh, uh, we have San Diego in April and we have a really cool event. Um, on April 17th and 18th. So we have our normal Art of Breath seminar on the 18th, and then we're having this crazy new event where on the 17th in San Diego, people can come. Uh, and of course, it's a pay event, just to be clear, but they you come and you get an EEG hooked up to your mind, your brain, while we take <laughs> you through focus exercises, and you get okay. feedback in real time. And this will be the first time this has ever been done with a group of people in public where you'll be able to see your own brainwave activity in real time while we purposefully do things to manipulate it. Um, so that's a super cool event we're really yeah. excited about. Um, then we're in Canada, Edmonton, Canada in May. We're in, we have a European tour in July, and then we're also in Nashville and more and more dates coming out all the time. But yeah, you can find all that stuff out at powerspeedendurance.com forward slash art of breath. Um, you can follow me on Instagram at prepare to perform. And then Brian McKenzie, the co-founder um, at underscore Brian McKenzie. And Brian's always uh, releasing new content and giving experiments and, and, and thoughtful input on all these subjects as well. So um, we're not hard to find. And purposefully so. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I've been watching watching uh, you guys now with the whole power speed endurance thing for, gosh, I think two years now. And like I mentioned to you, I've been following Brian for my whole military career because he was I first caught on to him when he was in Tim Ferriss's book. And honestly, I, I, I blame him for, for me actually starting to start my own fitness journey. So 
thanks to, to both of you guys for what you guys are doing for the for the military community when it comes to fitness and just people people with fitness in general. You guys are an awesome wealth of knowledge and you're great communicators. I was talking to somebody and uh, about this today. It's not always you can have the most the, the largest breadth of experience and have the greatest mind and have so much wealth of knowledge, but if you're not a good communicator and you don't know how to instruct and teach and pass on that information to other people, then the message never gets out there. And you guys are both awesome at it. So I appreciate you guys. Thanks very much. Appreciate that. Yeah, man. So uh, unless you got anything else, man, I'm going to go ahead and close this out. Thanks so much, Rob, for your time. I know you're a super busy guy. And uh, thanks for making the time to talk to us on the Warrior Monk Podcast. Uh, My pleasure. All right. I really hope you guys enjoyed that recording with Rob Wilson. Like I said before, the Art of Breath was an awesome, awesome clinic to go to. You guys should definitely go check it out. Make sure you go over to powerspeedendurance.com slash artofbreath and check out their most recent postings for where they're having their clinics. Uh, As you guys are well aware, COVID-19 is going, is international at this point. It's all over the US as well as all over Europe and everything else. So it's affecting their dates for where they're holding clinics. But go to their website, see what they're currently making available. I know they're going to be doing some stuff via webinar, uh, as well as using other online resources to try to reach out and spread the word of Art of Breath. So go check them out there on that website, as well as check out Rob Wilson at Prepare to Perform on Instagram and Brian McKenzie, other founder of the Art of Breath at underscore Brian McKenzie. And you can follow them uh, and their programming at power speed endurance thank you guys so much for listening in if you haven't done so already go follow the warrior monk podcast on instagram and facebook at the warrior monk podcast drop us a direct message a dm drop us a comment let us know what you think let's get connected let's have a conversation and let's learn to grow through balance all right guys have a great one this is lance out